1: so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: Hola. Hello.
5: It depressed me to see how familiar the taunts were through the ages. So, you look at some of the early MPs, for example, Leah Manning and Bessie Braddock, two early Labour MPs, who are in my book, briefly. They were called United Dairies because they had big
0: breasts. And you think some of that, that's very familiar on Twitter now. That was Kathy Newman on some of the challenges faced by female pioneers through history. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine available across the globe in print and digital formats. Find out more at historyextra.com forward subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Ellie Coulthorn, section editor at BBC History magazine. Today's interview is with the journalist and Channel 4 news presenter Kathy Newman. Kathy is also the author of Bloody Brilliant Women, the pioneers, revolutionaries and geniuses your history teacher forgot to mention. She spoke about some of the trailblazing women of 20th century Britain with our digital editorial assistant, Rachel Dinning.
3: So I thought we could start, why don't you tell me about your love of history and where that began, really?
0: Yeah, I've always loved history. i always
5: loved history at school. Um, And I suppose the truth is that my history teaching wasn't very good. Um, It was a little bit eccentric, shall we say. So... I always, ever since leaving school, I've read loads of history just to sort of make up for the gaps in my knowledge because I kind of, it felt like at school that I, I was taught the Anglo-Saxons many times over. So I knew everything I was to know about the venerable bead or uh, the venerable Bede as I used to call it, because <laughs> I didn't know any better, um, and nothing since. So I've since then just started reading and reading as many history books as I can lay my hands on, and that's kind of where... Um, the idea for the book came from, really.
3: At what point did you think, oh, you know what, there's a gap in the market here for a a book about women. Your book's about women from the past hundred years. Um, Where did the idea originate?
5: Yeah, I was reading one of these great history of Britain type tomes, which had better remain nameless because I'm about to be a bit rude about it. Um, (laughs) And I got to about page 50 and realised that the only women that had been mentioned were the Queen and Agatha Christie. And I just thought, in 20th century Britain, women must have been doing, there must be more women doing important and interesting things um, than just the Queen and Agatha Christie. So I started having a little bit of a sort of route around, see what I could find. You know, my journalist training kicked in and realised that actually there were so many women who achieved incredible things in all sorts of different fields who just hadn't, for whatever reason, made it into the history books. And I thought I'd try and put that right.
3: must have been quite a, a process narrowing down to your final sort of selection. Um, what is it for you that really makes a bloody brilliant woman?
5: Yeah, um, it was, yeah, because there there's so many and it is quite a canter through the century. So some of the women get quite a brief mention and I and that was quite tantalizing for me because I wanted to delve a little bit deeper, but I had to draw the line somewhere. But in a way, I think they're not, they're not saints, these women. They're not brilliant because they're good. You know, they're brilliant because they did extraordinary things and often when really the world was against them. Um, so, for example, just to pick my favorite woman in the book, I think, um, is Beatrice Schilling, uh, aeronautical engineer. It seems to me that it would be fair to say that without her, we might not have won the Battle of Britain. Because the story of Beatrice is that she became an engineer at a time when her biographer soon afterwards said, it was easier for a woman to think of a career in lion taming than it was (laughs) to become an engineer. So you can imagine how many hurdles there were in her way. And she sort of, I suppose, started to sort of train herself up by taking part motorbikes in her back garden and uh, she was always a motorbike fanatic. Amazing personality, I think that's another thing that that unites my bloody brilliant women in my book, that they're, they're incredibly strong personalities, sometimes quite eccentric. So Beatrice Schilling wouldn't marry her husband unless he raced her at 100 miles an hour on a motorbike. Oh, I love I that. that was just fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I wish I'd known that before I married my husband. Yeah, um, um, yeah. Test. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he'd have passed. But, um, <laughs> So yeah, so she yeah she, she took apart these motorbikes at the bottom of her garden and got trained up was given you know a bit of a um, boost in her training and then when it came to the Battle of Britain she fixed a fatal flaw in the planes, which were crashing because I'm trying to summarise now. I'm not an aeronautical engineer myself. But what was happening was that the planes were diving to avoid the enemy planes. And when they come, came up out of the dive, the um, engines were momentarily flooded with fuel and then they cut out. She fixed this flaw by coming up with a very simple fix, which was basically a disc with a hole in and she went round on her motorbike from one airfield to another, fixing this disc to all the Spitfires. And as a result, the pilot stopped dying and the planes were, were fixed, which was, you know, to me, that seemed an incredible thing. And why didn't we know more about her? Um, I mean, there's a pub named after her in Hampshire where she was born. But she's not a household name in the way that I think she really should be.
3: No, it seems like she's crying out for a biopic or something. Yeah. Um are there women in the book whose stories you hadn't heard about before you started researching?
5: I mean, I hadn't heard about her story. To be honest, there were, you know, there's women in the book who shaped the century, shaped the 20th century, like Margaret Thatcher, Barbara Castle, you know, some of the politicians, you know, Mary Stopes. Yeah, yeah. people, there's people that we do know, yeah. yeah. But actually there were things about Mary Stopes, a lot of things that I didn't know. Um, for example, she had some very dubious views on eugenics, so again, she's not a saint. She did amazing things in terms of um, access to abortion and contraception, but she's also got some, um, yeah, very uh, dubious uh, views that now would put her beyond the, the pale. Um, yeah, a lot of a lot of women I had heard of, um, but. The vast majority I hadn't. I hadn't heard of Beatrice Schilling. I hadn't heard of Noor Inayat Khan, um, who now is getting better known because there's a campaign to put her on the uh, the banknote, the new, I think it's the £50 mm. banknote. But she was a Muslim, um, well, spy princess is the kind of shorthand. Uh, she was in the special operations executive, which Churchill set up to help the French resistance. And to me, it was extraordinary that we we didn't know about this, this very interesting woman who has descended from Indian royalty who had this incredibly crucial role in the war didn't know about her um who else I mean Margaret Bonfield was the first female cabinet minister didn't know about her um I'd sort of heard of Claudia Jones who uh, set up the Notting Hill carnival yeah But I didn't know the details of how she did it. And she wrote a, she put together a newspaper for the black community in Brixton. So her story was very interesting.
3: It's quite interesting that you mentioned Mary Stopes a few moments ago and how the women are brilliant. But that doesn't necessarily Mm. mean that they're, you know, they're not these completely good women who yeah. are completely altruistic all of the time. I, I, I really personally quite like that approach because I think there's you're looking at them with all their flaws, which sometimes yeah. are, are big flaws.
5: Well, it's something like Gertrude Bell, for example, yeah. writer, traveller, she, she wrote the first white paper written by a woman. Um, she helped really shape the modern Middle East um, but she's very controversial. Oh, I must have, one story I love about Gertrude Bell is that when she was, she was at, I think she got the first first by a woman at Oxford before women were actually allowed to get proper degrees. But her don there, her her tutor there refused to face the women he was teaching. So he sat with his back to them because he just couldn't accept the fact that women were getting educated. But she has some very dubious views on suffrage. She didn't believe that women should get the vote because she didn't believe that they were educated. So again, now it's hard for us to understand mm-hmm. how how she held those views. But... Um, incredibly influential and impressive woman nonetheless.
3: At the moment, we've got this category of women's history. Um, we've even got that as a category on our website. Um, but do you think we'll get to a point where we no longer need it as a distinct category? We just have history and it's, it's yeah. completely equal. I, I think the key thing,
5: because I, I mean, I write about women and politics for The Telegraph from time to time. And again, sometimes people say to me, why, why do women need their own special category? And the problem is that until quite recently, the only people talking about these things and writing about them were women. And I think until you get, and it's starting to happen, I'm sort of cautiously optimistic, until you get men coming Mm. on board and saying, you know, I'm a feminist or I believe in equality for women too, then you do need that category because you're not going to hear about these women otherwise in issues that affect women across the globe so I think it's really encouraging Um, Emma Watson the actors campaign with Elizabeth Nyama Yarrow he for she campaign so just the idea that we need men to stand up and fight for equality and champion that cause too
3: well I spoke so I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago with the historian Max Adams who's he's just um done a book called unquiet women and it's stories of women through history and One of the things I asked him was, like, how did he feel as a man writing these women's stories? And it was kind of an interesting... Debate, because I think he he sort of said, oh, it's he wanted them to tell their stories. He yeah. was just sort of the vessel for it. He didn't want to speak on their behalf, kind of thing. But that's like like you say, it's something that we need more of. The, yeah, the men I'm, to start. To I'm get glad involved. men are
5: interested. That's important because it means finally these issues that would have been considered minority issues are now actually in the mainstream. And I think that's why the Me Too movement was so important because it made a lot of noise, it forced people to reconsider their behaviour, it forced big companies to look at what was going on in their offices and that's you know, I know there's been a lot of controversy about it. There's been a lot of backlash. But that, for me, was why it was so powerful. And I do think that there is backlash that's that's gone on. So every time you mention something about women, you do, on Twitter particularly, get a sort of chorus of protest about, you know, you're running down men. I'm, you know, I'm not remotely, that is not remotely my intention. I just want to give these incredible characters a little chance to have the spotlight for a bit.
3: Just on the subject of Twitter, obviously this is a new platform, another new area for women to, to perhaps get attacked. How do you deal with the negative negativity mm. on there?
5: Yeah, I, I think it's, it's very corrosive. It, it does, you know, I had a lot of negative, abusive tweets, death threats, all of that, when I did the interview about a year ago with Jordan Peterson. And it amazes me that, you know, the trolls are still going on about that you know it's like that's one interview out of 200 i do in a year Mm -hmm. and they're still attacking me and targeting me for it so it is quite corrosive i use twitter less than i did i think that's good for your mental health to you know curtail use of social media a little bit um i also think i care much less about what people say about me which is mostly good and self preservation but there's a bit of me that thinks you know it's a bit sad that i've had to sort of develop a carapace like that but I think the other thing is that I think the social media companies are finally recognizing and they need to recognize a little bit more that they've got to sit up and take notice I mean there's the kind of filth that gets put out on Twitter, Instagram, you know Facebook, YouTube, you know we as a regulated broadcaster wouldn't would never dream of we there's no way we'd be able to put out the kind of crap that that goes out on social media so I think they've got to recognize that they're going to lose the trust of their users if they don't get the house in order.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster.
3: And do you think, is this a new thing that women in particular and other minorities are having to deal with, or is it something that, from writing your book, Mm. did did these women face, you know, this sort of trollish behaviour?
5: Well, I think that, in a way, it depressed me to see how familiar the taunts were um, through the ages. So you look at some of the early MPs, for example, um, Leah Manning and Bessie Braddock, two early Labour MPs who are in my book, briefly. Um, They were called United Dairies because they had big breasts. And you think some of that, that's very familiar on Twitter now. That's the kind of taunts that female Labour MPs or any hue of MP gets today. Um, And I think what encouraged me was how good women in previous years have been at addressing this, not letting it hold them back.
3: The women whose stories you explore in the book are are mainly from the last century, I think, a little bit. Yeah, go a little bit further back, yeah. Um, So what, in your opinion, are some of the big sort of turning points in the past century Mm. for women?
5: Yeah, and the progress has come in fits and starts, which, again, is is sort of frustrating to see how women made such great steps forward. Just backtracking a little bit... um, I do sort of do, I go back to 800 in the book, just to see how, to set the scene really. And what struck me was that women had more freedoms in 800 than in 1800. Um, and you can largely, I think, blame the French for that because some of these, um, after the Norman Conquest, things got worse for women. So that's an early example of how progress gets made. You know, there were some very powerful abbesses Um pre-Norman conquest, and that all disappeared. But, yeah, so then First World War gave women lots of opportunities to do jobs that they would never have dreamt of doing, like driving ambulances, for example. Um, then between the wars, things sort of fell back a little bit. Again, World War II, you had Beatrice Schilling fixing the Spitfires. All these very important jobs that women did, okay, quite often it was voluntary, and, for example, the female pilots in World War II didn't get equal pay, until very close to the end of the war. So, you know, nevertheless, there was um, real progress made for women then. And then what interested me was after the Second World War, there was a kind of cult of domesticity that meant that women, I think, were held back from pursuing careers, um, you know, using some of the education they'd managed to acquire. Um, And then you have the sort of social reforms of the 60s, birth control, abortion, those kind of issues increasingly getting debated and women getting more fired up about it. And then um, the Women's Liberation Movement in, well, I suppose it started 1970 really. I mean, that was sort of second wave feminism. If first wave was women getting the vote, which, by the way, I forgot to mention, but that was the original <laughs> peg for the book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've done that, yeah. We've celebrated that centenary. Um, but yes, that was actually the original idea for doing the book it was pegged to that and then it's sort of the
3: class bl- 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 of 1918 bl- 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 exactly it, yeah that was the original title, title. Yeah. exactly
5: um so yeah now we're into fourth wave feminism third wave was the sort of intersectionality you know the way women women of color face extra hurdles to other women um and now fourth wave is me too so i kind of feel that progress has sort of galloped along but then of course You've got leaders all around the world. You've got populist movements around the world that are seeking to restrain progress for women and minorities. Um, so, again, I think you're seeing that familiar pattern where you think progress has been made and then it falls back.
3: Mm-hmm. And that's why it's important to have a book such as this one, I think. Keep Is reminding that, people. Keep reminding yeah. <laughs> people. <laughs> keep it in the book. I'm going to keep banging on about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you were going to write this book in, say, 50 years' time, who would you write about from today, do you think?
5: Well, and this is just British women, so yeah. that sort of limited my um, field deliberately because there's so many that I just thought, I'm never going to have time. to. You know, It took me long enough researching this one, but um, I would never have had time if I'd broadened the scope. But someone like Tarana Burke, who founded the Me Too movement, fascinating woman, her own personal experiences of sexual assault were what motivated her to do that and what an incredible achievement you know with a simple hashtag she has changed behaviors around the world and I know some of that is contested and you know there has been a a backlash and you know rightly questioning about some of the processes that have led to alleged perpetrators being sort of named online and you know has you need to follow a, a proper process of justice and So there have been criticisms, but what an achievement she's made. So someone like that, you know, 50 years' time, I suspect she'll be have her name in lights. But who knows what's going to happen? I mean, you know, are we going to get the first female president in the United States? You know, that's a big first. Will we get the first female chancellor of the Exchequer here? And apart from those sort of firsts, which are obviously landmarks, will we look back in 50 years and say that now you know, it's more than 50 years after the Equal Pay Act was brought in and still women are illegally getting paid less than men now. So in 50 years' time, are we going to finally say, actually, we've put that one to bed and that's done and dusted now. We have equality.
3: I want to talk a bit more about Beatrice Schilling because you've nominated her to be BBC History magazine. Well, she's your history hero for an upcoming issue of BBC History magazine. So when did you first hear about her? Well, actually,
5: so I've got to pay tribute to my bloody brilliant husband who helped me a lot with the research on the book. And I think he actually discovered that there was a biography of Beatrice Schilling, which was quite a find because, you know, there you've got sort of, you know, more contemporary documents about, you know, how uh, just what she achieved and the kind of actually the personality she was, because I'm fascinated by how punchy she was Um, and, you know, how history wronged her. So this device she came up with, the disc with a hole in, to fix in the Spitfires, was nicknamed Schilling's Orifice. She helped us win the Battle of Britain, and she's been reduced to a sort of gag about her vagina yeah. in, in history. So I think that's how, you know, you sort of histories of the period like David Kiniston's Tales of a New Jerusalem, or um, Sheila Robotham's A Century of Women, there's, you see sort of tantalising mentions of these women, and then to unearth you know the biographies of the time uh give you a sort of pointer as to how the you know, more more of the details about what they did
3: mm-hmm. what and you've already mentioned it a bit already but I'm going to ask you again um what kind of person was she mm. I think she is definitely what you
5: might call an English eccentric um She joined the British Motorcycling Club and became the first woman to lap the circuit at 100 miles an hour. Um, So you get this impression of this woman where other little girls were pressing flowers at the bottom of the garden. She was there in her overalls, taking apart a motorbike and working out the sort of rudimentaries of engineering. And actually she was given a break by a woman called Margaret Partridge who helped establish the Women's Engineering Society. And she, they wanted to install a power plant in, in Suffolk and she was looking for female apprentices. And Beatrice was suggested by one of her teachers and she was sort of mentored by this woman, Margaret Partridge, and from there sort of never looked back. I think she was groundbreaking in that As her biographer said, it was easier for a woman to consider a career in lion taming than it was to consider becoming an engineer. So at a time when women didn't know about any opportunities in engineering and there were all sorts of hurdles in her way, she nevertheless made it through. And quite apart from that, she fixed this flaw that was causing pilots to die in the Battle of Britain. Um, And, you know, it was really quite a simple device that she came up with, a disc with a hole in And she went round and fixed it from one airfield to another, you know, on her motorbike, laden with tools.
3: It's a bit like some of those butterfly effect kind of things, isn't it? Mm. Just a very small, this tiny little thing. It's just had such a huge, enormous impact. Well, I think you could say she helped change the course of
5: history. You know, that, for me, is a mark of a bloody brilliant woman.
3: Is there anything you don't admire about her? Not that that I've found out. (laughs) I mean, maybe there's some
5: hidden secret that i've yet to find out but um i mean i'm sure she was that one of the inspirations for the title actually was when ken clark called theresa may a bloody difficult woman and she then saw that oh, as a badge title of pride of yeah. Yeah, yeah bloody brilliant <laughs> women was kind of a play on bloody difficult woman sure. which at the time i thought it was quite clever the way theresa may sort of embraced that description of herself i think there is a power to being Difficult, And there is a brilliance in being difficult because no one ever says to a man, you know, oh, he is very difficult. So there's something sort of strong minded about being difficult and persevering where other people might give up. And that's what unifies a lot of the women in the book. Um, I mean, Dina St. Johnston, for example, um, founded the first Britain's first computer software house. She was described as difficult and, you know, cantankerous. And she had this very obsessive habit. So she she insisted on using a, a certain sort of Parker ink pen to strike out corrections and everything had to be absolutely, you know, perfect. So there's a sort of obsessive quality to some of these women. But without that... Determination. They wouldn't have achieved the things they did.
3: Well, I remember when I was at primary school, frequently being told that I was being bossy. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember any of the boys getting told stop being bossy. Yeah, bossy is a gendered bossy, word, isn't it? I feel definitely. Bossy, shrill. Um, can you see any parallels between Beatrice's life and your own? Gosh. Did, have you been racing around on a no, motorbike I recently?
5: Think, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I think... I can be a bloody difficult woman. But um, (laughs) no, I'm not. I mean, I would never, ever have considered a career in engineering. I didn't know about it. And careers advice at school is notoriously terrible. And I remember being, I remember doing a questionnaire at school about careers. And the answer came up that I should be a pig farmer. Because I said, (laughs) like, I like animals and I like the outdoors. So I'd never thought about being an engineer. But I wasn't particularly, my parents were both scientists and I wasn't particularly sciencey, so I was always English and music and much more much more artsy um so it was quite a challenge for me when my first one of my first jobs in journalism was working on the Financial Times, so I had to become very numerate very quickly, which was i I enjoyed the challenge, but yeah, I can't see myself as a Beatrice Schilling character. Yeah, I wouldn't say I share many traits with many of the women in the book. They're, you know, they're pioneering, groundbreaking women. Um, I wouldn't possibly pretend to be in that category. But I do sympathize with a lot of them where they, they're sort of quirky and a little bit difficult. I'm mm. sure I'm a little bit difficult to work with, um, to live with. <laughs> to ask your colleagues. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. But Muriel Spark, um, the novelist, supplied a biographical note to her publisher. Now, she was also a very difficult woman. She abandoned her admittedly abusive husband, but also her son in southern Rhodesia. So um, I hope that's something I wouldn't abandon my children. But um, I did admire this biographical note she supplied to her publishers. She said, Born in Ice Cave of southern Tyrol, year 609 BC of Centaur stock, mother descended Venus. Muriel spark rose from the waves, as is well known. Demands fabulous fees. So, as someone who's sort of spoken out about the gender pay gap, I have a, I, I sympathise with Muriel Spark there with that biographical note.
3: I think I remember, I must, I can't remember where I heard it, an interview with you where you, you were talking about, I think it might have been your first job and you got promoted, and then recommended. You're the next hire Mm. to take your old job and he was given 10 grand more or something Yeah, and this was
5: decades ago. So, you know, like 25 years ago or something like that. So 10 grand is a lot of money now, but it was even more money then. And he was in a junior job to me. He was the same age as me. So I went and confronted my boss about it. And um, he said, well, what do you need the money for? You don't have a family or a mortgage. (laughs) And I was kind of like, wow. So, yeah, I'm a bit bloody difficult on those kind of things, I think.
3: If you could meet Beatrice Schilling, what would you ask her? I'd
5: love to know what she would think of the world we live in, where particularly this the sort of influence of social media, how would she have approached that? I have a feeling she would have just been head down, get on with it. I don't think she'd have gone near social media. I think she'd have been far too interested in finding out the sort of, you know, complex details of an engineering problem. She'd have kept off... Instagram and Twitter so I suppose I'd like to I'd like to ask her advice on I'd like to ask her what advice she would give my two daughters Mm -hmm. in in terms of making it in the world because yeah I expect she'd have had some pretty shrewd advice and then you know hopefully we'd have she'd have taught me how to ride a motorbike and we'd have raced 100 miles an hour on the track
3: (laughs) Sounds great. (laughs) Um, is she a role model you would like your daughters to look up to
5: I think there's so many inspirational women in the book. I think, I suppose, this is slightly ducking your question, I guess, but (laughs) what I, and my 14-year-old has read the book, the 10-year-old hasn't. But what I hope that they take away from it, and other young women take away from it, is that whatever field you want to go into, whatever your interests are, there's nothing that should hold you back. If you work hard and you apply yourself, you can succeed in any field. And I hope that that is what... That most young women would take as inspiration from the book.
0: That was Cathy Newman. Her book, Bloody Brilliant Women, The Pioneers, Revolutionaries and Geniuses Your History Teacher Forgot to Mention, is available now, published by Collins. If you're interested in more history podcasts, why not listen to the latest episode from BBC Science Focus, which looks at the life of Leonardo da Vinci, 500 years on from his death. We've reached the end of today's episode, but we'll be back on Thursday when Lauren McKay will be discussing the Berlin family's rise and fall in the Tudor court. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. You can catch up with past episodes on historyextra.com, where you'll also find thousands of articles on all different aspects of history, as well as our special subscriber-only area, the library.